for the church and for uh, the kingdom of God. And I just want to thank you um, for that. Um, it was a great night, especially you kids that came out and prayed. Appreciate that. If you would, open your Bibles up to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 is where we're going to be. Our church is beginning a new sermon series today in the book of Acts that we've tagged uh, Supernatural. Uh, Acts is a huge book of the Bible. And so what we're going to do is we're going to just take this a chunk at a time, okay? And this first chunk is going to take us right up to about summertime. We're going to take a break, and I don't know where we're going to go after that. We, you know, we're just going to go where the God leads us, okay? Um, if you would, please give your attention to the reading of God's Word. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he had said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Everlasting God, you are so beautiful. You're the very essence of beauty. And um, God, I just want to pray that you would leverage all the resources of heaven that you have at your disposal to help us see how beautiful you are today and how beautiful your word is and that we'd be awestruck by you and that we would be drawn closer to you. Speak to us now. In the sacred name of Jesus we pray, amen. Amen. Uh, I want to begin by giving a glimpse as to uh, where we're headed as a, a church through this series in Acts, okay? Uh, reaching the lost with the gospel of Jesus. Reaching the lost with the gospel is why we took time to clearly define the mission of Crossway Church. That is why we took time to develop a discipleship pathway that is why we took time to define what it means to be a member of this church. That's why we've put into place policies that will help us actually do effective ministry. That's why we've begun the journey to, to becoming a church that moves together at the speed of prayer. Guys, I want you to understand something. That was not all busy work. That was, that was not for nothing but rather it was very intentional, very purposeful. We want to be effective in sharing the same good news that we have heard ourselves with others, that we can belong to God through Jesus Christ. Here are the facts. It takes an entire church working together to effectively share that message with the lost. Yeah, we can all individually go out and scatter seeds in the wind, 
but we want to be effective in what we are doing. It takes a defined, equipped, organized, and mobilized faith community that is committed to one another and empowered by the Holy Spirit to engage non-believers with the gospel and then to walk with them and disciple them for the long haul. You cannot do that as an individual. You cannot do that on your own with enthusiasm. You will get disappointed. You will wear out. We've got to do better than that. Guys, I want you to see that God has actually been slowly, gradually building biblical values and building a practical framework that our little church needs to support the weight of discipling the nations. Can you get your mind wrapped around that? That's bigger than this little thing that's happening right now, right? We don't think bigger. That's the horizon we're walking towards in this series in Acts. Luke is the author of Acts, and he wrote a massive two-volume monograph that's meant to be read together, part one and part two. His gospel account, that's part one, and then Acts, which is what we're talking about now. Uh, By the way, did you guys know that Luke actually wrote uh, more than the great apostle Paul? Did you know that? That's something I learned. I learned that from Sun, actually. <laughs> I stole some of her notes. It's true. Uh, word-wise, uh, page count-wise, line for line, uh, Luke is the single largest contributor to the New Testament canon. So let that blow your mind for a second. You know what that means? That means that we need to pay attention to what he writes about. He's got a lot to say, and it's pretty important. Luke is a meticulous investigator and he is a researcher of the claims of Christianity and of the historical events of Christianity and his attention to those details shows throughout his writings. He's a beautiful writer and he, is, he has been very meticulous in, in what he's recorded. So to help us interpret Luke, we need to understand the main writing genre that he employs. Uh, every literary genre has certain rules that an author plays by. Okay, so kind of think of it like this, sports, there's basketball, baseball, football, that's all under sports, right? But it's a different genre, they all have different rules that they play that sport by. Well, it's the same thing with literature, it's the same thing with writing. Poetry is laid out in stanzas, it communicates with figurative language. Apocalyptic uh, uh, genre uses end-of-the-world images, and it's supposed to encourage its readers. Uh, Law genre uses covenantal and forensic language. And most scholars agree that Luke uses a genre called rhetorical historiography. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Rhetorical historiography. And what's historiography? I'm glad you asked. I happen to have a definition. (laughs) It's from Webster's Dictionary, actually. That's a good one. Historiography. It is the writing of history based on the critical examination of sources, the selection of particulars from the authentic materials, and the synthesis of the particulars into a narrative that will stand the test of critical methods. That's what he's writing. That's the genre he's writing in. Basically, Luke Luke is definitely writing history, but it is selective history based on the examination of all the facts and the original sources that he had available at the time. This is how he introduces this book, and it's how he introduced the Gospel of Luke. He says so. 
And what he's done is he's synthesized them. He's brought together those selected events into a narrative flow. Acts reads like a, like a novel. There's a lot of really cool, smooth transitions. And it's really memorable because it's written like a story. In other words, it is history that has been presented in a way that is factual and it's persuasive and it's memorable. That is the rhetorical part of this historiography. He is trying to persuade his audience of something based on his arrangement of the facts as they happen. And so that is the standard that ancient authors, the ancient authors of historiography, they strove to meet that standard. They knew what the rules were, and they all tried to reach that standard. And my point is that that is a standard that we need to use in order to interpret Luke. We don't take the rules of modern-day journalism and apply them retroactively to Luke. That's not fair to Luke. Okay? So things are not always going to be in chronological order when he records it. That wasn't a standard that they said was good writing. He doesn't quote verbatim word for word every time he quotes somebody. That's a, that's a modern day standard that we use, okay? It wasn't something he was trying to meet. We have to know the rules of the genre we're reading in order to make sense of the writing, to be fair. Luke actually uses multiple genres in the book of, in the book of Acts. He uses genres like speech genres. So there's going to be a lot of sermons and speeches, you know, Peter and Paul and uh, Stephen. He uses biography genre. So we're going to get deep dives into particular people. And we're going to come back to that whole biography genre in a minute. But we need to take a look at another category of interpretation called descriptive and prescriptive language. Some of you may have heard of this. Since Luke is writing about things that are in the past, the question naturally comes up, well, which parts are for us today and which parts were just for, like, the record? On the record, right? Okay, here's what they told me my first year in seminary. They say some scripture is written with what's called descriptive language. It's merely describing what took place, and it's just furthering along the narrative, okay? It's just getting us from Jerusalem to Samaria, okay? We don't need to replicate what we're reading when we hit descriptive language. On the other hand, some scripture is written in what's called prescriptive language, in that it's describing actions for us today. And so we're clearly being told to do something or to not do something. Simple, right? Easy. Just look for the prescriptive and look for the descriptive uh, language and you're all set. Well, here's what they tell you your third year of seminary. <laughs> Those categories are really not that helpful when you're talking about ancient literature. I mean, they're a good place to start, but these are not hard-lying categories in Scripture. I mean, the lines are blurred sometimes. It's not so easy to tell. So what ends up happening is we come to passages that we don't really feel comfortable with, doesn't really jive with kind of how we were brought up, or we don't like it, and we say, ah, that's descriptive. I can ignore that. That was for them. We come to other stuff, we say, I like that, or that, that kind of agrees with what I was taught. Well, that's prescriptive, and so let's do that. So my question is, what is the way through this interpretation challenge? What's the way through? Uh, I'd like to su suggest something. Dr. Craig Keener has written extensive, an extensively researched four-volume commentary on the book of Acts. 
it's considered, his commentary is considered by other scholars in the field the gold standard. It's come up with all this different research. Okay, by the way, here's volume one of the four volumes. That's two and a half inches thick, eight point font. He's dealt with stuff that no one's dealt with up into this time. So, and this is just his introduction to the commentary on Acts and a little bit of chapter one. Just his introductory research. Okay? So I'm going to say something very, some of you might think this is controversial, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say something controversial. I'm going to say he knows more about Acts than me. Okay? <laughs> All right? So here, like that's an expert. To me, like that's the standard of an expert. Okay, so here's what the expert says. Keener says, quote, I believe that Luke intends Acts not merely as a historical record, though it is that, but also as a model for the continuing work of his own day. Historiography and biography regularly employ their accounts as positive and negative models. Early Christians were also accustomed to reading inspired narrative in this manner. See 1 Corinthians 10, 11. So for Luke, many models in his book are prescriptive. He, he provides models for the church's continuing cross-cultural mission. Close quote. So not only that, but scripture itself seems to intend for us to read narrative or history as instructive for us today, not merely descriptive. Let's go to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, shall we? It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So all scripture has some kind of prescriptive, corrective, or instructional value to it, which includes historical accounts, narrative, and biography. We could go 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now these things happen to them as people in the past, them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. Isn't that interesting? Scripture says that historical accounts are intended to instruct us in how to live as believers today. They're not just to illustrate what, what other scriptures say. They themselves have some instructional value. So we need a third category to help us read and apply Acts to our lives today, or else it becomes a highly irrelevant history book. And so you're thinking, a third way? A third category? Yes, a third category. I like the word that Keener uses. Model. Model. Or paradigm. A model or a paradigm means that there is a general pattern of behavior that the author intends for us to either follow or not follow, while allowing us to work out the specifics in our own situation. So a fuller approach to interpreting Acts is to recognize that some passages are descriptive, some passages are prescriptive, and many are positive and negative models. Okay, so, and one more thing before we jump into the text that I want to say. Let's come each week with a curiosity and an openness, okay? 
if you come to hear me parrot back what you've always believed your whole life, this is going to be a very frustrating three months for you, okay? It really will, and, and we don't want that. I may not interpret everything in Acts the way your last pastor did, okay? Or the pastor you're listening to on podcast. Or your family tradition you were raised in, okay? But you know what? I will do my best to show my work, okay? And I'm just going to be real honest with you guys. I, I am coming into this series as a learner myself, not an expert. I, I know who experts are, and I'm not an expert, all right? I'm coming into this as a learner. I am very excited about this. I think that is a far, just so much more enjoyable way of reading the Bible. Don't you agree? Say, what could I learn? What, how could I be challenged? So can we make an agreement? Can we just agree to come each week curious and be willing for God to challenge us? Can we do that? Uh, awesome, awesome. So with the time that we have left, let's get into the text that we read this morning. The first five verses in Luke are his preamble to the book of Acts. He's going out of his way to tightly tie Acts to the first volume that he wrote, his gospel account of Jesus. And at the same time, he's doing two things here. At the same time, he's also uh, setting the stage for everything that he's going to cover in greater detail in the book of Acts. So he's doing this. He's looking back and he's looking forward. He's looking back, he's looking forward. He's tying it to what he said before. And he said, it's continuing. I'm continuing what I wrote into the future. Luke is, Luke is talking, think about it this way, Luke is kind of talking in terms of like prequel, sequel, all right? This, now, this was prequel, remember that? We, our, okay, now this is sequel. Here's what's coming next. So I want to make three observations about Luke's prequel, sequel, uh, preamble here, all right? The first observation is we continue the mission of Christ. If you and I be believers in Jesus, we continue the mission of Jesus Christ. Let's go right here to verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do or teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he has chosen. There's a lot he's crammed into just those two verses. We'll just keep it simple, all right? Luke clearly wants to connect what he's writing in Acts with what he has already written about in his first account about Jesus. First of all, first clue is this. Both volumes are written to the same recipient. It's a man named Theophilus. Second clue, Luke references his first monograph as the first volume in a connected set. Third clue, he briefly recaps the content of that first volume. He says, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And that word began is a really important word for us to understand the, the book of Acts. Jesus, Luke tells us, Jesus began to teach his disciples. Jesus began to do things during his time on earth before he ascended. 
So while Jesus' work is finished in one regard, like in regards to salvation, his work is not finished in regards to something else. And aren't you curious now? What could that possibly be? That's what Luke wants you to be. He wants you to be curious. what, What else could there be to do? What other work is there? Jesus saved and chose his 12 apostles, but his work did not end there. I like how Pastor Tony Evans put it. He says, Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. He did not say, I'm finished. He was just getting warmed up. Luke says the same thing. Jesus was just getting warmed up. Jesus was just getting started. Jesus is alive and well, and he is present with his people, and he is still at work in his people in the world right now. Choosing and saving the 12 was just the beginning of an amazing work that he is doing in the world. These first two verses are a direct reference to the ending of, go- of the Gospel of Luke. So let's go, let's go prequel, all right? Let's go Luke 24. Then Jesus opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And boy, don't we need him to open our minds to understand the scriptures. Reading it's just not enough. Verse 46, And then he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That is the command that he gave the apostles in verse 2 of Acts. Luke is just summarizing that, but that's, what, that's the command he's talking about. Go preach repentance to all the nations and bear witness to me in the power of the Holy Spirit and speak to them about the kingdom. Jesus commands his father, followers, basically, continue my mission. Continue my mission. Finish the mission. You are to do the work that I do. And I am at work in you. And I am at work through you. Brothers and sisters, the book of Acts is basically about all that the living Jesus is doing by the Holy Spirit through his church in this world. Like, if we could sum it all up in a sentence, that's the summary. It's about all that the living Jesus is doing by the Holy Spirit through his church in the world. We've talked about this many times before, and here it is once again in the scriptures. When Jesus saves an individual, when Jesus saves a person, he also gathers them into his covenant people. And here we see that his people are defined by a mission. That is part of their identity as well, this mission. We are instructed to continue the mission of Jesus, of spreading the gospel to every nation in the world. When the Lord opened our eyes to how depraved our sin was and how mercifully God has loved us through his only son, Jesus Christ, he caused us to love him back. 
He calls us to want to follow him. He calls us to want to obey him, want to give our life to him when that happened, when he did that for us. And guess what? Following Jesus means more than waiting around to punch our ticket to heaven when we die. Jesus has saved us into his people who continue to continue this rescue mission in the world. That mission is a part of your identity and my identity now. To paraphrase the Blues Brothers, we're a people on a mission from God, all right? That's who we are. Second observation, we continue the mission with Christ's authority. We continue the mission with Christ's authority. Let's go verse 3 here. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. If you think about it for like longer than 30 seconds, uh, Jesus' command to his disciples is slightly more than insane. Wouldn't you agree? Just, just think about this. He tells this little band of believers who are the minority group in every city that they're going to set their foot to, dis- excuse me, to disciple every man, every woman, every child, and every nation of the world. Come again, Jesus? <laughs> right? Yeah, 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 like piece of cake, Right? Let that land on you for a second. Do you know what he's asking them to do? Now now keep this in mind. This group has no political power. And he says, go do this work. They also have no financial resources. They are also spreading beliefs that are laughable at best, and they are threatening to power structures at worst. And to make the impossible more difficult, they are told to begin in the very city where everybody knew them and had witnessed their leader die publicly on a cross. He says, that's where you're going to start this mission, just to make it a little bit more difficult. Guys, there is no humanly way possible that this Christian movement is going to get past the city limits of Jerusalem. This is a crazy, impossible mission from Jesus Christ. You think they were a little scared? Huh? You think they might have gotten discouraged at some point in their work while they're doing this assignment? Yep. Yep. Do you know what they needed right from Jump Street to, to, to continue this mission of Jesus? They needed Christ's assurance and his authority. They needed to see and touch and eat a meal with the resurrected Jesus in his resurrected physical body. See, as the church spreads out from the original 12, there had to be some believers that asked, you know, are, we sh- are you sure we heard cor- Jesus correctly? <laughs> you know, that was, a, that was a while back. Did, did we get this right? I mean, by what authority do we accomplish this mission? Can we really do this? Like, by what authority do we go into another culture and tell them you need to repent 
of your sin and worship Jesus Christ, who is the true king and loves you. Like, where do we get off doing that? Do you see the grace of Jesus in verse 3 here? He presents himself alive to them by many proofs for 40 days. Yeah, they needed some continuing instruction. Luke says, is saying to the church, he's saying to you and me, Crossway, yeah, 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 you heard me correctly. I didn't stutter. I don't have a speech impediment. This is crazy, but it's not suicide. And, and you know what? This isn't a hallucination that you guys had. That this isn't like some like attempt at you keeping the memory alive of a beloved leader as grieving people are wont to do. No, no, that's not what this is. You heard me correctly. You heard it from me. King Jesus himself, who has conquered death, has given you this mission. Guys, is that not what you and I need right from the beginning as well? Don't you and I need this? I mean, guys, listen, it's, it's difficult enough just to live a life that's faithful to Jesus in Port Orchard, isn't it? Just to, like, mind our own business and be Christians, Right? But to go beyond that, to share the good news of Jesus to those that are skeptical and maybe sometimes hostile, that can feel overwhelming. Amen? Can the church say amen to that? I mean, what, what good will it us do for us to proclaim repentance of sins and the good news of the kingdom to people that already have a God they believe in? They already have a belief system that they live by, and it's working just fine. Thank you very much. It's so like, what good is this going to do? Those thoughts kind of rise up. Guys, I'll be honest with you. I, I get nervous bringing up Jesus in conversations. I'm not immune to this. It is far more comfortable spending time around other believers that affirm what I believe than doing the work of building relational bridges to non-believers. That's, that's harder work. But you know what? It is a living resurrected Jesus that has given us this mission. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him and he is with us in this work. By what authority do you go tell someone how great Jesus is? Where do you get off? Where's your authority? We don't go in our authority. We go in his. We don't go in our name. We go in his. We go in his. We have no authority. We go in his. Third observation. We continue the mission by depending on the Holy Spirit. We continue the mission by depending on the Holy Spirit. Let's go right to the text here, verse 4 and 5. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. We'll talk more about this next week because time's kind of short right now. So I'm just going to just briefly touch on this. 
Luke is directly connecting Jesus' words in verses 4 and 5 here with Jesus' words in Luke 24, 49. Now check this out. They're so similar. 49, it says, For be, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Do you see how similar that wording is there? We'll come back to that direct connection next week. But Jesus is promising to give supernatural power to do the work that he has supernaturally called his people to do. He's telling you how to do something that's not natural. Sharing Jesus natural to you? Not natural to me. That's supernatural. Can't forget that, guys. Can't forget that. And he instructs them to rely on that supernatural power with the instructions to wait. To wait. Jesus says to wait in the city until. Here's what he's saying. Don't try to do this work on your own power. Don't try to do this work, this supernatural work, on your own wisdom, on your own enthusiasm, on your own strategy. Don't try to do it on your own power. You guys remember we did just a few weeks ago in that prayer series. We know what waiting means in the Bible. It doesn't mean kicking back and it's not like chronological time. I'm waiting on time. It's a, it's a watching. It's an engaged waiting. It involves prayer. Jesus is saying this, look, you actually need more than my clear direction. You actually need more than my word. You actually need more than my word to do this as great as and powerful as my word is. You actually need more than my authority, which I've given. You need my power. You need my supernatural power to do this impossible task I've given you to do. So when Jesus tells them to wait, he's saying, you must depend on me. You must rely on me. Jesus has given Crossway a supernatural mission. We can't forget that. It is too big for us to accomplish on enthusiasm alone. It's too big for us to accomplish on our own physical strength alone. It requires all of us to wait on the Lord. And what I mean by that is rely on Him, to depend on Him. It's going to require you and I feeling helpless and asking Him for supernatural power And here is this good news. He has promised to give us the power that we need to do his work. He's promised. Let's end with that thought. Oh, Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you, God, for who you are. You have given us an impossible task as your church to accomplish, but thanks be to God, you've also given us sweet and wonderful promises. You've given us your word, you've given us uh, your assurance of authority, and you've given us your Holy Spirit, your power. So God, I pray that you would work in our hearts and make us aware that part of our identity is this mission that we're on. And where we need that, Lord, just wake that up in us. We love you. We thank you for all that you're going to do. In Jesus' good name we pray, amen.